Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our podcast series on legal issues in the post-COVID world. My name is Gil Porter, a partner at Haynes & Boone and chair of our COVID-19 task force. Today is Monday, July 20. The first time I can remember suffering from a summer heat wave and tax deadline fatigue at the same time. We're going to return to a prior topic in our podcast, reopening of businesses in our post-COVID environment. The last time we spoke about workplace issues was in May, and a lot has happened since then. Some guideposts were emerging about when and how employers should invite their employees back to the workplace, and we were optimistically looking forward to a carefully planned, progressive reopening of our economy. Sadly, two months later, the road ahead for employers remains anything but clear. Fortunately, two of my partners have rejoined us today to help guide us through the chaos. Jason Habinski from our New York office is chair of our employment practice group, and Matt Defeback, who splits his time between our Houston and Orange County offices, is the chair of our OSHA and Workplace Disasters group. We are also joined, as usual, by Nathan Koppel, our head of media relations, who will continue his role as moderator for this series. And I will turn this over to Nathan in a moment, but first, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. Moreover, by their very nature, the topics we discuss in these podcasts will be fast-moving and subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. That's it for me. I'll talk to you at the end, but let me turn it over to Nathan. Gil, many thanks. I appreciated it. As you mentioned, the legal picture, regulatory picture, still seems, unfortunately, pretty muddled for employers. Uh, Jason, I heard you say recently that employers face a, a virtual mosh pit of conflicting guidance on COVID-19 do's and don'ts. I'm going to ask you today to delve into this mosh pit and and please describe what the state of affairs is uh, for employers. Sure, Nathan, and that's a legal term, a virtual mosh pit, and that's truly what employers and lawyers have been experiencing as far as the introduction and implementation of laws and regulation and guidance, given the extraordinary nature of the pandemic that really touches upon so many different issues, what you've seen is really this combination of of laws and guidance and directives coming from everywhere. You're seeing it from the federal government in the implementation of response uh, rules and regulations like the Families First Act. Uh, You're seeing the uh, states and the cities are implementing their own laws in providing compensation and consideration to individuals. Then you have a whole host of laws which govern the accommodation process and the discrimination process, and that's federal, state, and local laws. Then you have executive orders from all types of government offering regulation as to how employers and companies and individuals need to conduct themselves. So you're really seeing it from so many different directions. And not only that, it's changing on a daily basis. Governments are essentially changing their protocols, their laws and directives as more is known about this virus, as we develop uh, different uh, considerations for the phase of the return to work, the return to work and then the stopping of the return to work and, and kind of taking a step back to the, well, now we need to work from home again. 
so what you're seeing is, is really uh, guidance, laws, and directives of, of all types coming from so many different directions, which makes it very important for both employers and lawyers to keep on top of this and essentially keep on top of the daily minute-by-minute -minute developments uh, so that an employer can understand what its obligations are. You know, what are the legal obligations and what are what's the guidance and what are the recommendations and, and take all of those things together and focus on what industry you're in, what jurisdiction your employees are working in, and then making sure you're complying with all that, which is, is an extremely, extremely difficult task. Yeah, I would think it's just got to be maddening for, for so many businesses to, to try to navigate this and to make matters even more complicated. Uh, Matt, I understand there's also critical OSHA guidance that, uh, that employers need to, to pay attention to. Could you please describe the OSHA landscape? Absolutely. And, you know, as Jason alluded to, it's uh, very much changing and evolving as well, particularly at the state level. And so I, I think for employers, it's COVID has been a crash course in OSHA as you have companies that are typically not exposed to workplace safety issues. They're, you know, they're, office settings, not industrial settings. And so on the OSHA side, one, you really need to look at, if you're multi-state, what's happening at the state level. We have federal OSHA that has very specific uh, workplace safety rules and regulations and this general con concept of keeping your workplace safe and free from hazards like COVID-19. And so on that front, employers need to watch what's happening with the agency, particularly as it comes to return to work and making sure they're doing those things to implement the latest and greatest safety controls, those things that are recommended by the CDC and others. But then really where there's so much evolution is at the state level. And there's a, roughly over 20 state programs that operate separately than the federal government. Just recently, Virginia passed the first specific COVID temporary safety standard. In, in states like Michigan, there's requirements to have specific plans. On the West Coast, Oregon's about to announce a plan in terms of specific COVID responsibilities for employers. So really, as Jason alluded to, you need to be watching out for what's happening, particularly at the state level, because those state rules and regulations may vary and may actually impose more restrictions in terms of enforcement, uh, now having specific standards like in Virginia that you have to comply with. So really for an employer, you wanna make sure you're watching out what's happening at the state level in addition to what's going on at the feds. And then the other thing I'd say is this, which is really important, for those that are not really following and not accustomed to OSHA regulations and standards, there's really an ongoing requirement to audit what you're doing. And as COVID evolves, you can't just have safety programs doing the latest, greatest social distancing, mass programs, you have to audit those. That's very much a concept in safety. So as, as COVID evolves, are we doing new hazard assessments? Are we looking at now that we're having more cases, do we need to be doing more in terms of our screening protocols, making sure we understand how to respond to positive cases? So it's very much, as Jason alluded to, an evolving issue on the safety side as well. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to turn now to one of the major issues I think many are in, uh, facing as we try to reopen workplaces, and that's childcare. I'm I'm in Austin, Texas, and uh, I know at least here 
the school districts haven't decided when school starts, if it'll be virtual in place uh, or, or what the situation will be. And I'm sure that's true in most cities in the country. Jason, I'm curious, to what extent do employers need to accommodate employees who are facing such a so many challenges in dealing with childcare? And Nathan, this really is, as you said, a, a critical issue because I would be shocked if, if most schools weren't on at least some sort of hybrid program where children are at least part of the week working from home, if not working from home for the full week. In addition, there's going to be parents who are going to be making the choice to virtually learn their kids or educate their kids and don't want to send their kids to school. And then you're going to have the unfortunate spikes in um, in in, in uh, potential exposure where schools are going to ultimately have to shut down again. So what you're going to have, you're going to have children working from home, which means you need parents taking care of those kids. And how does that infect, affect employers? Obviously, that affects every employer's business because you have employees who have a primary obligation to take care of their kids. Obviously, it's important to work, but it's even more important that they can take care of their kids who are now at home. Uh, so employers do have various obligations with respect to employees who are required to take care of their children as a result of this pandemic. Uh, some of it is directly included in the various laws that have been passed by both the federal government and state government. If you're an employer with under five, 500 employees, then the Federal Families First Act does, in fact, include a provision of certain paid and unpaid leave for individuals who have to take care of their children as a result of a school closure. Uh, so that is very clearly an obligation of employers uh, for employees who, who are, in fact, required to take care of their kids. In addition, there's various state laws uh, which trigger the same obligation for employers uh, there's also additional laws in various cities and states requiring paid sick leave, which also covers the closure of a school. For example, here uh, where I am in New York City, uh, that is, in fact, included as part of the Paid Sick Leave Act. In addition to that, employers may have additional obligations to provide further family medical leave, act leave to parents who are taking care of someone who may be sick a child who unfortunately who has been exposed, this could trigger additional obligations. In addition to that, employers certainly may be in a position where they have to accommodate employees who have these needs, or in addition to that, may decide they wanna offer something like unpaid leave for a parent who needs to take care of their kid, even if they've utilized all of their leave under federal law, if they've utilized all of their company provided leave, uh, it would be important for employers to consider this and offer some sort of unpaid leave. Obviously, these are uncharted, uh, uncharted waters, given the extraordinary nature of it. So it is going to take a lot of understanding, a lot of co cooperative dialogue between employers and employees, really, to make sure they get this right. Let me ask you about another another kind of leave. What if, uh, and that is, what if employees uh, are exposed to to the virus, and and perhaps, what about the situation where employees face multiple exposures? Do employers have to provide leave? I would assume each and every time. Both very good questions, and a lot of the laws I, I referenced in answering your previous question are also triggered if employees are in, in fact exposed do get sick or in a household with someone else who, who has been exposed, 
under the federal law and various state laws, you are required to provide some sort of leave. And some of that is actually paid leave under federal law and state law. As far as the paid leave goes, you, once you utilize the, that leave, uh, you don't have to allow employees to, to double up the allocation under the federal law. But again, there may be state laws which provide additional leave for additional causes of time off. For example, you could have two completely different reasons for the leave. Part of it could be because you've been exposed and you get sick, but then you have a situation where when a family member also becomes sick or you're required to stay home as a result of, of a child not having school. So there are a lot of different factors in play where while in some circumstances you may not be required to allow an employee to extend their leave under a particular law, the way they all work together, it is possible that employees will be uh, be able to take leave under under various different laws or different laws. In addition to that, uh, the cause of the leave may be different if someone gets sick, triggering additional rights under the Family and Medical Leave Act or city and state law. So it, it is important to understand how all of these laws work together in providing leave. Matt, I want to ask you about perhaps a more slightly more subtle issue, but I, I would think one that's common, and that is what if an employee has an employee, him or herself, or uh, is at high risk of exposure or has a family member who is at high risk of exposure um, and they just don't feel comfortable uh, going to going back to an office setting? Is that something that employers need to accommodate? Yeah, Nathan. I mean, this is going to really be a, a kind of a never-ending issue as long as we're dealing with the pandemic. And, you know, we've talked about it in the past on podcasts and webinars about the extensive amount of issues that may come up when an employee feels they're high risk, particularly now that the CDC has you know, labeled certain conditions as being high risk, others that could be potentially uh, under the COVID regime. And so, so with employees themselves, obviously you have to walk through the disability ADA type accommodation, is remote work something that you could accommodate someone who's high risk based on the nature of your business, obviously. Some businesses, employees need to be there physically in the business. To, to the second point of your question, I think one of the areas that could trip up employers is this issue with an employee who may not be high risk, but they have someone in their family. So they may be a caregiver. They have someone in their household. And on, on that issue of accommodation, the general answer, and this is one where it really is important to talk to your legal counsel because it can vary under state law. But generally, when you're talking about an accommodation that's not for the employee, but for someone else, an employee's family member, for example, generally under federal law, there's not a duty to accommodate. However, there are certain states where there may be. So this is an area where you really want to watch out. Number two, even apart from the accommodation issue, you really want to watch out as an employer to avoid discriminating based on somebody who's an employee who may, who may associate with someone who's high risk. Because under the Americans with Disabilities Act, not only does it protect an employee from discrimination based on a medical condition that may be a disability, but also if they associate with someone who has a medical condition. And this is tricky for employers because disability under the ADA is so broad um, that you wanna watch out for things like employers that stereotype on well, we know you're taking care of someone who's older, who has medical conditions. So even though everyone else is expected to be at work, you're not. So you're treating that person differently. Or as the EEOC cautioned, 
watch out for things like harassment. You know, perhaps employees know because of previous uh, conversations before COVID about someone who's taking care of someone who has all these medical conditions. And now they're saying things about that and treating that person differently and harassing them based on that because they're, they're fearful of that person coming to work and exposing them to COVID. So employers definitely need to be on the lookout for those. And then the final point I make that Jason alluded to is someone is a caregiver, although it may not be a, a accommodation issue in the disability sense, under the Families First Act, there is provision for paid leave if someone is caring for someone who a doctor has said is, has COVID or is at high risk or maybe quarantining. So watch out for those uh, issues as well. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate that. Uh, Jason, we've seen such an incredible paradigm shift in the workplace to remote work. Uh, and it seems like we've seen that it can be probably a lot more seamless and efficient than many employers imagined. I'm wondering if that's created a, a legal burden in, to some extent for employers to allow remote work. Has it changed? Has it shifted the, the legal test as to whether that's allowed? It, it certainly has had a great effect on an employer's ability to tell an employee that it cannot allow the employee to work from home because it's too difficult or using the legal defense. It's, it's an undue burden. Uh, in the past, employers used to be able to rely on this concept that, well, we don't let employees work from home or it doesn't work or it's an undue hardship because you can't perform productively while you're working from home. Well, guess what? Uh, employers across the country and across the world uh, have you know, essentially employees have proven that, uh, that they can work from home, that they can do so productively, that they can perform the essential functions of the job while working from home. So it has become a lot more difficult for employers to now claim, well, you, you can't work from home. That's impossible. It's certainly possible, and it's certainly possible for an employee to do it well. So employers have to be particularly careful about using a defense that it doesn't work or it can't work. Uh, with that said, an employer doesn't have an obligation to allow employees to work from home unless there is some sort of request for a reasonable accommodation, leaving aside that it's the safest course and the safest thing to do. And in fact, OSHA, as my friend Matt would tell you, and various states are encouraging uh, employers to allow employees to work from home because it's the safest thing to do. Uh, in addition to that, if an employee does request a reasonable accommodation because they have a, a disability or they're susceptible or they're older or they're pregnant, then an employer very well may have an obligation to provide some sort of relief by working from home for some period of time. And it does become a lot more difficult for the employer to say, well, it's an undue hardship. We can't do that. In addition, employers should be looking for ways to create a safer workforce. So whether or not there's a particular legal obligation, again, an important consideration is, can we do it this way? Uh, would an employee still be able to perform their job? And does that, in fact, make our workplace safer? And, and the answer to that last question, of course, is yes. The more employees you have working from home, of course, the safer your workplace is going to be both for other employees as well as that employee who's not going to be coming to work. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Matt, I want to turn to the topic of testing, which still remains so 
confusing uh, both testing for the virus and for antibodies. I'm curious what you tell clients about whether they should be testing or, or whether it's just still too too many unanswered questions. Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> I think if, if we you know sort of look back to the beginning of COVID, the, the testing issue's always been very confusing and continues to be. And you know what what we really tell employers is take a look at your specific operation. And when you think about sort of the big picture of trying to provide a safe workplace, there may be employers that testing really is unnecessary, that, that the nature of their workplace is such that they're able to appropriately implement social distancing, that they're able to use remote work, you know, to, to Jason's point, such that because of some of the issues I'm about to talk about, the testing may not be right for them. Now, for others, um, you may have a workforce that's you know, customer-facing, where there's more potential exposure, your critical business, and there's a you know, suggestion, perhaps, that is a critical business that testing might be something you should consider. Um, and so you really want to look at how much exposure you have. And then based on that, the question becomes, all right, what if I do need to have a testing program? What can I do? And there, there's been, you know, a recent, somewhat recent change in the sense of antibody versus, versus diagnostic testing. So, you know, if you step back, the idea of doing any testing of your employees in a, a non-COVID world would generally be a problem under the ADA as an impermissible medical test. But the EEOC early in the pandemic said, okay, we could see how testing would be okay, provided one, it's reliable, and two, it's accurate. Well, you know, that's a million dollar question in terms of rolling out testing, but assuming that you can get a provider to have an implemented testing program that is reliable and accurate, the only testing that EEOC says is permissible is diagnostic. So that idea of doing antibody testing based on CDC guidance, the EEOC came back and stepped back and said, well, wait a minute, on antibody testing, we really don't think it is accurate or reliable enough to use as a gatekeeping function. So for employers that were doing antibody testing, they had to step back and determine, well, what do we do now? Can we make it a voluntary program? Is there something else we can do? So if you are in a scenario where you think there's just so much potential exposure that you need a testing program, then it has to be obviously diagnostic, and then you need to look at reliability. And then the other issue you have to look at is we all know now with so many cases, it takes a long time to get testing results back. So you have to design a program that's fair to your employees in terms of how long are they out? Are they going to be using PTO if you're waiting? Are you following other CDC guidance? If it takes too long to get testing results and you have positive or suspected cases, are you going to instead have people quarantine and follow the timing protocols that the CDC has laid out such that you have employees who are waiting 10 days if they tested positive or they are uh, you're waiting for their symptoms to go away? You have to really think through all those issues because now we have a delay factor on testing as well. So it just makes it very difficult. And I think you really do need to decide, is it worth it for you? And if you don't have high exposure, perhaps now because of reliability and the time delay on testing, maybe that's not a necessary element for your particular program. Yeah, it just sounds incredibly complicated. Jason, I'm going to end with one uh, question about another confounding uh, topic, which which is surprisingly so. It seems like the balance of scientific opinion suggests that wearing a mask is, is a good way to contain the virus. 
yet a lot of people don't seem completely convinced of that. So I'm wondering how employers deal with masks. Should they, can they, or should they require it in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, it, it, most importantly, there are various jurisdictions where it is required, um, it, where the directives specifically state if employees can't social distance, they, they, they are required to wear masks. So, uh, you know, so certainly that is something that an employer should make sure they're fully aware of what are the laws and what is the guidance in that particular jurisdiction and certainly comply with that. Um, certainly, there are situations where an employee may request reasonable accommodation from a requirement to wear a mask if they have asthma or some, some other condition. If that's the case, an employer should engage in an interactive discussion to determine whether, uh, whether there is some relaxing of that requirement is warranted. But you know, employers do, in, very, in, in many cases, have an obligation to require employees to wear masks in the workplace and in any event may or want to do so because it, it's obviously a safer, safer course of action. Many thanks, Jason, and, and thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Uh, I want to let listeners know that Jason and Matt hosted a webinar uh, last week on, on the topic of the necessary steps, precautions, and protocols that employers should consider as they restart their workplaces. I would encourage listeners to also check that out. It's available at Haynes and Boone's COVID-19 resource page, which is at HaynesBoone.com. And with that, Gil, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Jason, Matt, and thank you, Nathan. I know that we gave this topic the subtitle when we were chatting earlier, The Fog Thickens. Consistent with that analogy, the clear advice is to drive with caution. And thank you to our listeners for joining our COVID-19 podcast series. We are on our summer schedule. We have our next webinar and podcast scheduled for the week of July 27. We're going to take another look at that time at the CARES Act, but from a different perspective, that of an investor or a company looking to acquire a business that has participated in the funding programs under that act. Please join us. As a reminder, you can find our podcast, webinars, and other content at HaynesBoone.com. That's H-A-Y-N-E-S-B-O-O-N-E.com. Please also feel free to reach out to me or to Nathan Koppel, our media director, if you have any suggestions for further podcast topics. Take care all and have a great and safe week.